Welcome to a special series on the Acquisition Talk podcast that gives you an audiobook tour of my research project titled Program to Fail, The Rise of Central Planning in Defense Acquisition 1945-1975. to I'm Eric Lothran of the Baroni Center for Government Contracting at George Mason University. You can find this book for free and over 1,300 blog posts on my website, acquisitiontalk.com. In this episode, we explore how the Department of Defense radically broke from liberal traditions and American values by installing a Soviet-style process called the Planning, Programming, Budgeting System, or PPBS. It is not a coincidence that progress in military technologies dramatically slowed down over the course of the 1960s and 70s. This is a direct implication of the PBBS, which took decisions out of the hands of people closest to the work and rose the status of unaccountable bureaucrats aligned with comptrollers, accountants, economists, and analysts. There has been a growing recognition of the need for reform of the Industrial Age PBBE process so that the United States can outpace peer competitors like China and Russia in military technology. Senator Jack Reed from the Senate Armed Services Committee said of PBBE, It is likely too slow and cumbersome to meet many of DOD's requirements to adopt new technologies in a rapid, agile manner. Representative Adam Smith from the House Armed Services said, We've got to give the Pentagon greater flexibility in terms of moving money around so that they're not locked into two-year or five-year cycles. And former Representative Mac Thornberry wrote how, Today's rapid innovation and technological change renders our industrial age approach to funding obsolete. The fiscal year 2022 National Defense Authorization Act created a congressional commission to investigate reform of the PBBE system. The commission has a hefty duty, for it is the first major review of the resourcing system since the Jackson Committee hearings of the late 1960s. They are tasked with analyzing the extensive timelines, new and agile budgeting methods, and how other agencies and countries resource programs, as well as to make recommendations. Yet we know from history that PBB has failed in virtually every agency and every nation that it has been attempted in, including Canada, the UK, Japan, France, Sweden, Australia, and many countries in Eastern Europe. As scholar Aaron Woldovsky wrote, quote, Program budgeting does not work anywhere in the world it has been tried, end quote. Alan Schick later concluded that its efforts were rarely successful. I personally believe that the Department of Defense has been able to operate and deliver under the burden of PBB while others have consistently failed because of the quality and dedication of the American people. Just consider that since the 1960s, the number of budget line items has increased nearly 20-fold, locking funding into tiny financial prisons. The amount of reprogramming, or the ability to reallocate funding, has fallen to just one-tenth of what it had been in the 1960s. Requirements to fully predict the life cycle cost prior to start of a program assure military innovation fails. 
This episode of Program to Fail provides an important economic backdrop to the adoption of the planning, programming, budgeting system, a system that continues to dominate how money flows and weapons are resourced today, and why it must be reformed. Here is the crux for why this research effort is called Programmed to Fail. The post-war revolution in defense management found its roots squarely in RAND, but reflected a broader trend in public administration dating back in the United States to the late 19th century. If the logic of military unification derived from German concepts of bureaucracy and the general staff, then RAND's philosophy was derived from the German historical school of economics. Essential to the German tradition is analytical holism and a rejection of the, quote, fictitious individual assumptions of classical liberals, end quote. Because markets were identified with social and economic failures, particularly during the Great Depression, a new class of expert was required to identify remedies using the administrative state. The economist, as an American profession, was built on men schooled in Germany who solidified their expert status by creating university departments, prestigious associations, and new government bureaus on statistics and regulation. They proposed rational planning from the top as the singular solution to social problems. To justify his controlling role in society, the economic expert relied on the legitimacy of the scientific method. One top expert Henry Farnham, compared the evolution of the economic sciences to the medical sciences. He found that surgery was once primitive and dangerous, but advances in science had made it most beneficial to society. Similarly, the economic expert had by 1910 enough scientific knowledge to make his reforms more effective and less dangerous. The analogy was repeated over 50 years later by Alan Enthoven, Assistant Secretary of Defense for Systems Analysis, who said, quote, My general impression is that the art of systems analysis is in about the same stage now as medicine was during the latter half of the 19th century. That is, it has reached the point where it can do more good than harm. End quote. Even though he directed the Office of Systems Analysis from 1961 to 1969, Enthoven joined defense leadership at the young age of 31. Before that, he joined RAND straight out of his doctorate program at MIT in 1956. There, Enthoven became a protege of Charles Hitch. He joined the team working on defense resource allocation systems based on the methods of program budgeting and systems analysis. The system followed in the tradition of economic expertise that traced back to the War Industries Board of the First World War. Enthoven saw the promise of a resource allocation system based on programming and systems analysis. He was enamored with the application of the scientific method, which itself does not depend upon the personalities or vested interests. Such quantitative measurements and modeling allowed for the greatest clarity of thought to be achieved, even when uncertainties are present. Alluding to Alchin's work on systems analysis, Enthoven remarked how, 
quote, Many people seem to feel that quantitative analysis is not possible if there are uncertainties, but this view is incorrect. In fact, there is substantial literature on the logic of decision-making under uncertainty going back at least as far as Pascal, Bernoulli, and Bayes in the 17th and 18th centuries. End quote. To Enthoven, the triumph of the scientific method in management and economics replaced the need for so-called quote, direct experience and the reading of history books, end quote. He held the highest hopes that marginal analysis that he learned in his sophomore year of economics would translate into actual defense decisions. He wrote that, quote, the economic theory of price and allocation, a branch of moral philosophy in Adam Smith's day, has been reduced to mathematical terms and made into a usable instrument for quantitative analysis and problems of choice. End quote. The allocation mechanism developed by Enthoven, Novak, Hitch, and others at RAN became called the Planning, Programming, Budgeting System, or PBBS. When Robert McNamara took over as Secretary of Defense in 1961, he went full bore on implementing PBBS. McNamara hired Hitch to take over as his number two in the comptroller spot, charging him with expediting the PBB system. Hitch recommended Enthoven to direct the Office of Systems Analysis with its critical role of coordinating the entire defense program. Observing the exuberance over PBBS reforms, Frederick Mosher wondered, quote, what is really distinctive and new about it, end quote. To Mosher, the PBBS had little to distinguish itself from the Title IV performance budget. But his critiques of the budgeting system, like Alchin's critiques of the system's analysis process, fell on deaf ears. The program budget represents an idea that naturally arises from the requirements of central economic planning. In the place of voluntary exchange, rational allocation became the focal point of economic discourse. In fact, the War Industries Board during the First World War represented the culmination of a generation's work in economic planning. The War Industries Board's Central Bureau of Planning and Statistics was headed by Harvard Graduate School Dean Edwin Gay. He fixed prices in more than 60 strategic industries and directed railroads by determining output priorities and resource allocations. Gay said that the scientific administration used by the War Industries Board was, quote, the most important advance in industry since the introduction of the factory system and power machinery, end quote. War Industry Board member and historian Grosner Clarkson echoed the sentiment, finding that, quote, the whole productive and distributive machinery of America could be directed successfully from Washington, end quote. John Dewey found that the War Industries Board represented a revolution in economics and finally demonstrated the efficiency of expert central planners. The program budget was part of a broader discourse on resource allocation. All centralized planning requires relating resources to objectives through an analytical framework. Economic experts and socialist theorists alike believe that central planning could far outstrip the productive capability of uncoordinated markets. John Dewey said that the War Industries Board did more to advance central planning than a generation of socialist theorizing. It was not hyperbole when historian John Rice 
said that military staff planning in 1964 was almost socialist in its metaphysics. Centralized planning for an entire economy arose from the belief in the power of science and human rationality. It stemmed from a Newtonian view that if a scientist knew the disposition of all particles at a given instant, the future could be predictable based on a set of equations. With confidence that administrative experts could emulate the triumphs of the natural sciences through planning, prominent scholars such as Austrian Otto Neurath believed that the war economy should be extended. Neurath wrote that, quote, As a result of the war, in-kind calculus was applied more often and systematically than before. War was fought with ammunition and with the supply of food, not with money, end quote. Nurath advocated a moneyless system, planned from the center, that allocated resources based on labor standards. Ludwig von Mises, also an Austrian, rebutted that economic calculation is impossible without references to prices. Changing factors affecting resource shortages or surpluses are reflected by participants bidding the price up or down. Allocation decisions do not require any single person to have detailed knowledge of all relevant information dispersed across the economy. The impossibility of centralizing the knowledge of ever-changing production factors to solve a system of equations means that there is no rational basis for allocation decisions without references to prices. Many socialist thinkers appreciated Mises' arguments exposing the problems in central planning. Oscar Longa wrote how, quote, a statue of Professor Mises ought to occupy an honorable place in the hall of the Ministry of Socialization or the Central Planning Board, end quote. Longa recognized the challenge, but believed that central planning could work by employing neoclassical economics to equilibrate supply and demand. He described the problem of choice of the economic central planner, quote, The economic problem is a problem of choice between different alternatives. To solve the problem, three data are needed. First, a preference scale which guides the activities of choice. Second, the knowledge of the terms on which alternatives are offered. And finally, third, knowledge of the amount of resources available. With those three data given, the problem of choice is soluble. End quote. The market economy took the preference scale as given to consumers, the resource constraint as given to suppliers, and the terms of alternatives as given by prices that arise in market exchanges. Central planning, whether in the socialist form, traditional budgeting, or PBBS, assumes that preferences and resources are also given, and the terms on which alternatives are offered is generated through analysis. In socialism, The alternatives are determined through industrial analysis and linear programming. In traditional budgeting, it is political analysis. And in PBBS, it is systems analysis. The final solution proposed by Oscar Longa and elaborated by Abba Lerner is that prices were required, but they need not emerge from decentralized market exchanges. Instead, industrial units would produce from a given supply of inputs and set price equal to the marginal cost of production based on labor standards. Shortages and surpluses then expose the need to adjust allocation from industrial units. 
Production would then be coordinated not through immaculate calculations, but from a series of trial and error approaches that sequentially minimized the misallocation of resources. Belief in the efficiency of central planning pervaded not only economists who leaned towards government intervention like John Maynard Keynes and Irving Fisher, but also market-oriented thinkers like Frank Knight and Joseph Schumpeter. Schumpeter, often revered as a champion of market economics, is associated with the creative destruction view of technological innovation. Yet Schumpeter was smitten by the longer learner model of central planning. He even believed that innovation itself could be planned. In his 1942 classic, Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy, Schumpeter wrote that, quote, Innovation itself is being reduced to a routine. Technological progress is increasingly becoming the business of teams of trained specialists who turn out what is required and make it work in predictable ways. The romance of earlier commercial adventure is rapidly wearing away because so many things that can be strictly calculated had of old to be visualized in a flash of genius. End quote. Schumpeter's views gravitated towards central planning because even he thought innovation worked in predictable ways. Creative destruction could then be planned for. It was not the outcome of decentralized actions associated with tinkering and exchange. The view is consistent with systems analysis because technology could be predicted during the planning stages and its parameters reduced to a routine. A withering critique of central planning came in 1945 from Friedrich Hayek, an Austrian economist of Mises's mold. He posed a simple question, quote, what is the problem we wish to solve when we try to construct a rational economic order, end quote. Hayek started his answer in a similar way Alchin did when analyzing weapons choice. Quote, if we possess all the relevant information, if we start out with given systems preferences, and if we command complete knowledge of all available means, the problem remains purely one of logic. That is, the answer to the question of what is the best use of the available means is implicit in our assumptions. End quote. If information is perfectly known to the central planner, he can determine the optimal allocation of resources across an entire economy as much as he can across weapon systems. Hayek said that his contemporaries believed scientific knowledge to be the only relevant knowledge in existence. If that were the case, then a body of suitably chosen experts would be in the best position to command all the best knowledge available. Hayek disagreed. He found a different form of knowledge to be at the center of economic progress. Quote, Today, it is almost heresy to suggest that scientific knowledge is not the sum of all knowledge. But a little reflection will show that there is beyond question a body of very important but unorganized knowledge which cannot possibly be called scientific in the sense of knowledge of general rules. The knowledge of the particular circumstances of time and place. The sort of knowledge with which I have been concerned is knowledge of the kind by its very nature cannot enter into statistics and therefore cannot be conveyed to any central authority in statistical form. The statistics which such a central authority would have to use would have to be arrived at precisely by abstracting from minor differences between the things 
by lumping together, as resources of one kind, items which differ as regard to location, quality, and other particulars in a way which would be very significant for a specific decision. It follows from this that central planning, based on statistical information, by its nature cannot take direct account of the circumstances of time and place and that the central planner will have to find some way or other in which the decisions depending upon them can be left to the man on the spot. End quote. Hayek identified a problem that only dispersed actors had access to local knowledge of time and place. A rational economic order, then, required a solution that is produced by the interactions of people, each of whom possesses only partial knowledge. To assume that all such knowledge is available to a central planner is to disregard everything that is important and significant in the real world. Hayek's idea that knowledge of economic activity was inherently non-aggregatable harmonized with Alchin's ideas on weapon systems analysis. They both pertain to the discovery of knowledge dispersed across time and place. For Hayek, entrepreneurs acted upon local information and those who speculated well were rewarded with profits, while others who speculated poorly had losses. For Alchin, defense decision makers must take advantage of knowledge discovery in a similar way. Knowledge of the correct technology does not exist in the planning stage. It only reveals itself in the process of discovery across time and multiple technical approaches. Innovation in weapons and the economy more broadly are then processes which generate information which otherwise would not have existed for a quantitative analysis. Successful solutions are then selected by the environment. At the time, very few shared the economic outlook of Hayek and Alchin, who themselves differed in many respects. The particulars of time and place were largely discounted in favor of macroeconomics, which utilized economic aggregates such as total consumption, investment, and employment to direct future policy decisions. In his path-breaking 1947 textbook, Foundations of Economic Analysis, Paul Samuelson developed a mathematical framework that explained macroeconomic theory and swept through the economics profession. Before that time, economics still relied on the spoken language and diagrams. By providing a rigorous mathematical treatment of the social welfare function, the fiscal multiplier, the production function, and other abstract concepts, the textbook first and foremost presented policymakers with a formula to influence the economy. Throughout Samuelson's life, however, he could not appreciate Hayek's ideas about the dispersed knowledge of time and place. His textbooks took initial conditions as given and solved for the equilibrium without any treatment of the process in which equilibrium came about. One consequence of Samuelson's macroeconomic approach was that he looked at aggregates of investment and not the particular qualities of individual choices. Samuelson concluded that Soviet income would grow two to three times faster than the U.S. due to its higher investment rate. In at least 10 editions of his textbook, up until the fall of the Soviet Union, Samuelson continually updated a graph showing Soviet income at half the level of the United States in the present, but growing and surpassing the U.S. in the future. That future in which Soviet income exceeded the U.S. never came, but it did not force the economic mainstream to reconsider their confidence in predictions based on statistical aggregates.
The historical context of the economics profession in the middle part of the 20th century is central to understanding the rise of the PBBS. It focused on mathematical models, identification of market failures, and administrative remedies. Axel Liadhavhud recalled the economic atmosphere inherited by the 1960s. Quote, What I learned in graduate school was arid, trivial stuff. Optimization exercises combined with equilibrium conditions that had no foundations in any examination of how actual markets work. This was not the fault of my teachers. This was the state of the profession in general, end quote. James Buchanan echoed the sentiment, commending Armin Alchin and Friedrich Hayek for breaking with the mainstream and introducing evolutionary thinking into economics. Both the optimization and evolution models of economics were reflected in RAND in the 1950s. While the optimization approach led to systems analysis, the evolutionary approach led to diversified investment. The contrasting models were also entangled in the seminal 1960 book on the PBBS by Charles Hitch and Roland McKean. In the economics of defense in the nuclear age, Hitch and McKean laid out the principles for PBBS. Presented in the economic jargon of the day, the authors explained that the goal was to, quote, facilitate an economic calculus within the services, end quote. In the effort, the most important reform is to reveal the cost of meaningful end product missions or programs like active air defense, rather than the cost of classes of objects like personnel, military. Programming provides the important link that allows for traceability between resource inputs, budgets, and military outputs, plans. The system allows for a holistic economic analysis of the defense organization by joining costs and capability analysis under program elements. Just like goods and services in the markets, program elements could be subjected to optimization exercises. Much of the language used by Hitch McKean suggested Samuelson's framework. Quote, We want to choose the efficient point which maximizes the utility or military worth of the combined forces. In practice, the explicit measurement of military worth frequently presents formidable difficulties. If we abstract away from these difficulties for a moment in order to clarify definitions, we can draw curves, called indifference curves, that reflect our preference for some combinations of target destruction or kill potential over others, end quote. The tangency point of the indifference curve and the production possibilities frontier, together with the budget constraint, represents the optimal allocation. Despite formidable difficulties presented by defense problems, the authors devoted large swaths of the book to optimization exercises in the context of defense. At the same time, however, the book contained ideas that seemed to align with Alchin. They wrote, quote, Research and development are uncertain by definition. Research is a search, and one rarely knows in advance whether a search will be successful at all, let alone how long it will take or which route will lead to the treasure. The military services have all too frequently tried to command the research and development community to invent new weapons to specification just as they would command a platoon of infantry to march by the right flank. One of the most important and obvious corollaries to the uncertain character of research and development is the desirability of some duplication. End quote. The inconsistency between optimization and duplication was picked up in a 1962 congressional hearing on systems development and management. 
By that time, Hitch had become the right-hand man to the Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara for more than a year. He had been working to strengthen centralized control in the office of the Secretary of Defense. The economics of defense in the nuclear age, however, criticized the centralization of R&D. Herbert Roback, a committee staffer, asked the incisive question. Mr. Roback. One of the points you made in the book was that it was a serious mistake to try to centralize control over R&D because you might dry up initiative or you might do many other things. Now, how does it look to you today? Mr. Hitch. I do not remember having said anything like that in the book. Mr. Roback. Oh, you do not? Under the caption, Reorganizing Research and Development, the authors discuss these critics who have been complaining about the uncoordinated nature of R&D. Mr. Hitch. Let me assume that sentence was written by Mr. McKean. There was laughter in the audience, but Representative Chet Holyfield piled on, reading out the paragraph. The authors wrote of those who would centralize R&D, quote, They try to suppress competition and diversification because particular duplications are obviously wasteful from the vantage point of hindsight, apparently unaware that duplication is a rational necessity when we are confronted by uncertainty and that competition is our best protection against bureaucratic inertia. End quote. The book Hitch co-authored strongly criticized management techniques that now was testifying in support of. Hitch, after again deflecting the comments onto Mr. McKean, felt he had to address the point. Quote, no, I have not changed my views, Mr. Chairman, about the fundamental nature of research and development. Hitch said bluntly, quote, it is important to distinguish between research and development that is directed towards the development of new ideas and the testing of those ideas, on the one hand, and the fabrication of prototypes and operational systems, on the other. I think that these kinds of remarks that you have just quoted are directly applicable to the first kind of research and development, end quote. Perhaps as a concession to Alchin's view, Hitch and his team at RAND had been working on distinguishing the stages of research and development. Hitch believed that basic research, or the pursuit of science, played a different role than full-scale development, or the pursuit of engineering. The latter was better suited in Hitch's mind to optimizations, detailed long-range plans, and tight central control through execution. The apparent contradiction between Hitch's book and his policy plans may therefore be seen as a difference of opinion between authors as to which stage of R&D required diversification. McKean believed that diversification should be pursued for a wider range of research and development activities than Hitch, who believed diversified investment only made sense at the earliest stages. McKean's position sat closer to Alchin, who applied diversification to all stages of R&D, as well as test and evaluation. McKean later wrote how it is good practice in budgeting for research and development to leave empty spaces here and there. This allowed decision makers to postpone commitments until more information presented itself. Hitch, on the other hand, wanted program elements defined in the budget once scientific knowledge is put towards operational hardware. The intent of operational capability called for program definition and tight central control throughout the program budget. Hitch wrote that, Economic efficiency demands that alternative programs be costed prior to the selection of the preferred program. The entire framework of defense management prohibited the pursuit of competitive developments. Funding a diversity of approaches with regularly placed options to change directions defeats any generalizable method for measuring program success. 
even when success and failure is clear to the subjective observer. Program budgets and systems analysis are not conducive to adaptive planning by local actors who will naturally overlap one another. Instead, they gravitate towards holistic planning of the force structure. The planning programming budgeting system largely depended upon deciding in advance the particulars of what must be done and measuring progress to the centrally approved plan. The intended result was a unified budget that outlined the cost and objectives of programs, including the implications of funding changes. Hitch believed that earlier attempts at the PBBS, such as Title IV Performance Budget, provided little unification in fact. The Secretary of Defense had used budget ceilings rather than proactively selecting between service programs because he lacked the management techniques to do it. Hitch complained that military planning and budgeting have traditionally been treated as independent activities, the first falling within the province of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the second within the province of the Comptroller. As a result, each year the Secretary of Defense found himself in a position where he had to make major decisions on forces and programs without adequate information and all within the matter of a few weeks allocated to his budget review. Hitch tried to bind programming and budgeting in the Comptroller's office, which had purview over systems analysis. The program budget process started from military requirements set out by the Joint Chiefs of Staff in the Joint Strategic Objectives Plan. The service staffs then interpreted those requirements into well-defined program packages in the Draft Presidential Memoranda, or DPMs submitted for review by the Office of Systems Analysis and the Secretary of Defense. The systems analysis laying out the quantified program plan became unquestionably the largest factor in Secretary McNamara's decisions. After an elaborate stage of review and revision, Comptroller then tied together all information for the entire defense program. The result, reminiscent of socialist industrial plans, is a five-year defense program a register of approved program elements with budget estimates for the next five years. The services could only request changes to the FIDUP by submitting a program change proposal to the Office of Systems Analysis. The centralizing process naturally created a huge flow of paper. The Bureau of the Budget reported that the amount of paperwork involved, particularly for program change proposals, was bogging down the system. As a result, the Office of Systems Analysis attempted to head off program change proposals by providing guidance for changes likely to be approved in the tentative force guidance. By the spring of 1964, the Systems Analysis Office of about 50 analysts became, in the words of one former member, the basic force planners of the whole system. Admiral Hyman Rickover commented how, quote, it is important to recognize the degree of detailed technical control over the military matters these systems analysts exercised through the, the draft presidential memorandums, end quote. He noted that the draft presidential memorandums and the program change proposals did not provide the services a serious voice at the table. Captain Stanley Barnes worried that programming, as it is now conceived by a civilian authority, will dominate the total defense planning process eventually replacing military planning with a body of ad hoc civilian-sponsored, directed, or conducted studies and analyses. In fact, that was precisely Hitch's goal. He wrote that, quote, The job of economizing, 
which some would delegate to budgeteers and comptrollers, cannot be distinguished from the whole task of making military decisions. End quote. In order to monitor the execution of approved programs, bookkeeping devices were required throughout the services. The PBBS program elements decompose into well-defined systems managed by the system's program offices. However, most of the information required to make good estimates and evaluate performance was not held by the program offices, but with the contractors performing the work. The PBBS therefore required reporting structures that extended down into the contractor's management system. The framework for lower-level management reports came from similar systems independently developed by DuPont and the Navy. DuPont developed the critical path method, and the Navy, in concert with consultants like Booz Allen, developed the Program Evaluation and Review Technique, or PERT, which today is known as Earn Value Management. PERT was formulated in 1958 and applied to the Navy Polaris program in 1959. Thomas Morris, Assistant Secretary for Installations and Logistics, described the PERT system to Congress. PERT was specifically designed to pre-plan the fantastic complexity of modern weapon systems. Polaris, for example, employed over 10,000 people itself. What is PERT? Morris rhetorically asked. Quote, First, break down each project into tasks which are significant for control. The second objective of PERT is to estimate the expected time and cost required to complete each task. Third, to continually review actual performance versus estimates in order to readjust schedules and financial plans well in advance of time slippages and cost overruns, end quote. Morris then went into an in-depth discussion. PERT breaks down the system into a hierarchy of parent-child relationships between subsystems, components, and assemblies called a work breakdown structure, or WBS. For example, the Polaris system includes the missile, the submarine, facilities, and other subsystems. The missile itself has children elements for guidance, body, and propulsion. The missile propulsion is made up of a case, nozzles, and controls. And the missile propulsion controls include cables, reliability, thermal transducers, and so forth. But the planning process did not end there. With the network of activities connecting every necessary step to complete the project, the longest single path of activities in the schedule represents the critical path. Any slippage to activities on the critical path will cause the entire program to slip. The PERT system also generated internal predictions. An independent cost estimate at complete is possible by projecting forward current cost performance. Suppose that, for example, Having aggregated all activities, the project has expended $1 million, but has only accomplished $500,000 worth of baseline work. If current performance persists, the entire project may cost twice as much as expected. Let's further suppose that the project had only planned to accomplish $500,000 worth of work at that time. Then we can conclude that the project is maintaining schedule by burning at a higher expenditure rate. In 1962, the joint DOD-NASA PERT guide was released and over 200 major defense projects began employing the PERT system. David Novak at RAND called the change a, quote, major step towards effective control of new programs, end quote. While the system had only impacted acquisition projects, Novak held hopes that the same kind of progress reporting could be employed for military operations using workload indicators. The information generated by PERT has implications on the budget process. 
Centralized management through the PBBS requires a flow of detailed information, or else the process could grind to a halt. When decision makers at the top are provided real-time data on performance, they can make trade-offs in a timely manner. With greater responsibilities put on prime contractors, the reporting system had to extend to industry at large. Contractors, however, complained bitterly about the increased direction of management systems from the government. For one, the planning, scheduling, and accounting systems required enormous investments into new computers. One contractor submitted an estimate of $7 million to perform a work on a $1 million contract due to the cost of PERT. Robert Anthony, Hitch's replacement as ASD comptroller, recognized that government officials were placing excessive costs on the contractors and often usurped detailed planning. In 1967, Anthony issued guidance that prevented micromanagement of contractors and instead required them to conform to the 35 industry standards. Even with this relaxed guidance, progress on contractor control systems proved slow. PERT not only strained organizations in accounting, but impeded the success of R&D projects. L.E. Lovell wrote in 1966, Huge sums of money have been spent on PERT programs before discovering that the PERT approach was not feasible within the context in which it was planned. He found that in the Polaris program, many of the activities were compressed into time periods that were not adequate for completion. Other activities were allocated too much time and too much effort. Small errors in estimates could lead to major replanning of scheduled activities. The early success of the Polaris program was, in fact, not due to PERT. By the time PERT had been employed in 1959, Polaris had been a SPO, or a systems program office, for four years. Further, Polaris did not deliver the full operational capability in the performance estimates. The first missile had only half the range and destruction, and it wasn't until 1964 that its full requirements were met. Polaris benefited from diversity in the early stages and rapid testing. It did not set detailed plans until many technical issues had been resolved. Some of those working on Polaris in the 1955-1960 period argued that they would have been hamstrung by the policies instituted during 1961-1965. Oscar Morgenstern had great doubts about the success of Polaris had systems analysis been applied from the start. In 1967, Harvard researcher Harvey Sapolsky was invited by the Polaris Special Projects Office to write a history of the program. In the book, The Polaris System Development, Sapolsky devoted an entire chapter to PERT and the myth of managerial effectiveness. He found that PERT was not used for major parts of the effort until years after the first Polaris launch. Not a single group within the project claimed to have benefited from the original PERT. Quote, In interviews with contractor executives reviewing their experience with the original PERT system, not one of them said that they had used the data. Instead, many thought it was the special projects office, technical officers, and engineers that had been using the PERT system data. The technical officers and engineers, in turn, denied ever using PERT data to manage their segments of the fleet ballistic missile Polaris program. They thought it was the program evaluators in the plans and programs division, if anyone, who had made use of the PERT system. Yet those in the plans and programs, however, admitted that they themselves never used the system. Rather, they thought it was either the technical branch heads or the special projects plant representatives who worked with the PERT reports. The plant representatives themselves had a similar response. No, it must have been someone else. End quote.
Though not a single group of project participants could be found that benefited from PERT, the project as a whole did. Sapolsky found how, quote, it had lots of pizzazz, and that's valuable for selling a program, end quote. Another participant said, quote, the real thing that was to be done was to build a fence to keep the rest of the Navy off of us. And we discovered that PERT charts and the rest of the gibberish could do this. It showed everyone that we were top managers, end quote. Sapolsky discovered that the Polaris advocates used PERT to market themselves to leadership in defense, Congress, and the public. The tactic worked. Polaris easily secured large budgets without detailed oversight that often comes with it. With the privileged position, the Special Projects Office pursued two or three alternatives simultaneously for major components and subsystems. Sapolsky reported on an encounter that typified the program office's unorthodox method. Quote, when a Navy field office accountant sought to apply the usual bureaucratic delays to fleet ballistic missile contractor requests, he was told that he would be immediately transferred to another less desirable assignment if he attempted to do so again. Think big or get out was the message. End quote. Uncertain environments require a learning process to overcome problems. Philosopher Karl Popper found that all problem solving, whether in nature or in the lab, required the trial and error method. To be more precise, he elaborated, it is the method of trying out solutions to our problem and then discarding the false ones as erroneous. This method assumes that we will work with a large number of experimental solutions. One solution after another is put to the test and eliminated. By making the entire weapon system a single potential solution, however, the system's approach constrains problem solving by restricting the number of solutions tried and thus errors exposed. Popper wrote that, quote, if there are not very many solutions, then they would not be worth considering as attempted solutions, end quote. Without numerous solutions tried, there can be no experiment in which errors are identified and new problems exposed. Popper realized that, quote, we are always learning a whole host of things through falsification. We learn not only that a theory is wrong, we learn why it is wrong. Above all, we gain a new and more sharply focused problem. End quote. Popper concluded that, quote, error correction is the most important method in technology and learning in general. In the biological evolution, it appears to be the only method of progress. One rightly speaks of the trial and error method, but this understates the importance of making errors, of the erroneous trial, end quote. Methods such as PERT, systems analysis, and PBBS create an institutional bias against error correction and towards error suppression. As famed engineer Kelly Johnson from Lockheed Martin's Skunk Work wrote in a memo, quote, We will have nothing to do with PERT cost in any concern with which I am connected, end quote. The trial and error origins of industrial revolution technologies, such as textiles and steam engines, are well established. Rand analysts found in 1958, quote, engineers are notoriously more successful when they can tinker with pieces of machinery than when they are asked to make all their decisions at the drawing table before there are any test data on which to base them, end quote. The PERT method, however, has little managerial value when activities require trial and error. Under true uncertainty, when planners cannot know the content or interrelationships of future activities until more information is generated, PERT proves a wasted effort at best and a rigid encumbrance at worst. 
PERT does not allow for rapid updates to expectations of projects, directions, and it is fragile with respect to uncertainty. The more uncertainty is present, the more likely it is that overruns will far outweigh underruns. Yet PERT also neglects the benefits of uncertainty, such as opportunities to generate vastly superior performance by a change in technical directions. Positive unintended consequences are thus foregone. Exposure to cost risk is maximized. Rand analysts in 1958 pinpointed two key weaknesses of the PERT method. Quote, any attempt to schedule an entire R&D program at one time is likely to lead to inefficiency, either because plans for the later stages may have to be scrapped and remade on the basis of information yielded by early tests, or because... In the pursuit of premature plans, a development program may fail to profit from new information gained along the way. Either case will cause delays, raise costs, or both. End quote. McNamara and most experts at the time subscribed to the system's analysis view. McNamara's increased confidence in predictions created major problems for one of his first acquisition initiatives, the TFX aircraft. Not only was the TFX intended to fulfill the role as interceptor, fighter bomber, and strategic bomber for both the Navy and the Air Force, the TFX also included pioneering technologies in airframes, engines, and radar. The fiasco of the TFX program, eventually the F-111 aardvark, is a source of disagreement. However, the facts are that the program cost quadrupled even though the Navy dropped out after only eight aircraft and the Air Force reduced its procurement to one-third the plan level. This does not even take into account the substantial decrease in aircraft performance from estimates. Program troubles arose despite a long program definition phase devoted to planning. The TFX technical failures must be viewed as an institutional failure in acquisition management. Cost-effectiveness was the greatest factor driving decisions. McNamara, and even top military advisors like General Bernard Schriever, believed that the role of multiple aircraft could be achieved with only one development program, one set of tests, and one supply network. The TFX would also generate enormous economies of scale in procurement and vastly simplify maintenance and logistics. Unfortunately, none of those realities, which appeared so certain as a result of the system's analysis, came to pass. By the end of the decade, the program had become a crisis. Yet a 1970 investigation failed to attribute responsibility. It stated that not enough information existed at the time to make a final determination, leading to an operationally inferior and more costly aircraft design. The planning stages prematurely locked in technical decisions on the F-111, causing rounds of rework. The same planning error has been repeated numerous times in defense decision-making. Writing for Armed Forces Magazine, C.W. Borkland concluded that, quote, We are haunted by the specter of overstudy in weapons needs, while at the same time much of the influencing analysis and basic knowledge upon which weapons development decisions are founded is superficial and shallow. In 1965, President Lyndon Johnson decided to implement the PBBS principles across other federal departments. The Bureau of the Budget instructed that each department develop its own program budget along with the system's analysis capability. Without prior experience and analytical tools necessary for the program budget, implementation proved controversial. Two years later, in 1967, the Congress started to hear testimonies on the effectiveness of PBBS. 
The final report emanating from the Jackson subcommittee clearly showed skepticism of the new technique. The Jackson committee report presented many sides of the argument, from Admiral Rickover on one extreme to Assistant Secretary Enthoven on the other. Senator Henry Jackson, chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee, commented how, quote, Some good historians and objective scholars are going to have a field day with the oversimplifications that officials have put in the record since 1961 about previous Defense Department policies and methods, end quote. He recognized that, quote, well before PBBS, it has been proved possible to assemble defense budgetary information by functions or missions for special requirements, end quote. While PBBS was removed from nearly every other department, including state, agriculture, and health, education, and welfare, it remained embedded in the Department of Defense. McNamara's successor as Secretary of Defense, Melvin Laird, vowed to purge DOD of Enthoven's control through systems analysis. Regardless of the rhetoric, Laird did not abolish the systems approach. He devolved many of the systems analysis functions to the services, and in 1972, changed the Office of Systems Analysis to Program Analysis and Evaluation, or PA&E. The role of PA&E was largely to assist in the review of service programs at major milestone decision points. By giving the military services primary control over programming, Laird sought to generate participatory management. Yet the form of decision-making in the PBBS changed little. It still required extensive before-the-fact controls on program requirements and costs. Laird replaced the draft presidential memorandum with the Program Objectives Memorandum, which retained the essentials of the McNamara Program Package framework that fed the same five-year defense program. The services which had grown their own systems analysis capabilities to combat the Office of Secretary of Defense now employed them to justify their programs. John Dawson wrote in Armed Forces Comptroller, Today is not a replay of the 1950s, because systems analysis were firmly established in DOD. Craig Powell shared the sentiments, believing that the majority of volleys have been fired at the principles of system analysis have also been blanks. Historian Charles Schrader found that, quote, it is evident that at both the DOD level and within the service departments, systems analysis is considered sound application of economic theory and scientific method, and it is generally accepted as a good thing, end quote. He concluded that the McNamara-era reforms prevailed in the battle because his concepts proved superior to traditional ways of doing things. Their triumph thus represented a triumph of the scientific, rational method over experience and intuition. Scientific management of weapons acquisition proved unassailable. Extensive before-the-fact control mechanisms continued to proliferate. Reflecting on the poor track record of PBBS, historian Walter Poole asked, should centralization be labeled an acquisition failure? He answered his own question. Unanticipated unknowns continually thwarted to trade off costs against performance in setting requirements. However, if unanticipated unknowns are expected in acquisition, and certainly the pursuit of R&D is the pursuit of the unknown, then acquisition processes that are fragile with respect to uncertainty should be replaced with those that are robust to, or even benefit from, uncertainty. Instead, systematic errors were viewed as challenges to develop better estimates. The PBBS survived to the detriment of weapons innovation. This overview of PBBS focused on the economic theory and context. For more administrative and process details of PBBS, 
including its impact on the budget structure, reprogramming, expiration of funds, and the methods of oversight. See my paper, Pathways to Defense Budget Reform, submitted to the 2022 Naval Postgraduate School Acquisition Research Program Symposium. 50 years of reform to acquisition, contracting, requirements, and workforce can only go so far without addressing the overarching governance mechanism found in budgeting and policymaking. Portfolio management is at the heart of necessary reforms. Large technology companies no longer budget to specific projects. They budget to persistent development teams that are empowered to make cost-scheduled technical trades throughout. If the Department of Defense wants to compete against peer adversaries and do business with the most innovative commercial companies, greater execution flexibility in the form of portfolio budgets are required. A precondition to that flexibility, however, is value-driven methods of reporting and oversight. Looking at the traditional methods of budgeting provides an important framework for understanding why innovation was superior in the 1940-1960 to timeframe. But it needs to be updated for lessons gained in the 21st century in terms of agile enterprises, continuous delivery, and DevOps. Thanks for listening to this introduction to an acquisition talk series called Program to Fail, The Rise of Central Planning in Defense Acquisition 1945-1975. to Stay tuned as new episodes are released. For more information, or if you'd like to provide feedback to me, please visit acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again.